In this sixth episode of our Frankly Speaking podcast, recorded on Thursday the 17th of March 2022, Senior Fellow Jamie Shea is joined by our guest speaker, Dr Stephanie Babst, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO and now a Senior Associate Fellow of the European Leadership Network and Principal and Global Policy Advisor of Broach Associates, a strategic consultancy company based in London. We are now three weeks into the war in Ukraine, and every day brings horrendous reports of more human suffering, refugees fleeing, thousands of unaccompanied children with reports that some are going missing. This week, a fourth round of negotiations took place between Ukrainian and Russian officials, but as the bombing continues, there is no sign of a ceasefire yet. Pressure is therefore mounting on the EU and NATO to do more. Yesterday, Wednesday the 16th of March, NATO defence ministers met in Brussels to discuss what further support could be provided. In this podcast, we talked to two former NATO officials, our fellow Jamie Shea and guest speaker Stephanie Babst, about the outcome of this meeting. We also look east to the pivotal role that China could play in convincing Putin to stop the war and ask what can we expect from the Chinese. And finally, in this week's podcast, we include questions from citizens from our Debating Europe platform. Stephanie, I'd like to turn to you for the first question. NATO defence ministers, as we just heard, um, met yesterday uh, to decide on um, how to provide, what to provide. Uh, they seem to have decided to provide significant amount of extra military, military uh, equipment for Ukraine. But will it be enough to tilt the balance of power in Ukraine and or force uh, Russia to freeze the conflict into a ceasefire before more structural talks begin? Well, first of all, uh, thank you very much, Tracy, for this very um, good and challenging question. And let me also say that I feel absolutely delighted. I mean, to spend the next half an hour with my good friend and former colleague, Jamie Shear. So, but coming back to your uh, first question, I think what it boils down to is basically um, the question, what is uh, the West's strategic goal in all of this? Um, and I must admit, it looks to me as if... Uh, the West will continue to equip the Ukrainian armed forces to the extent they can hold as much as possible and as long as possible Russia's military aggression in Ukraine, ultimately until sanctions really start to unfold and start to bite. So if this is the strategy, if this is the uh, rather strategic objective, then yes, it makes a lot of sense to uh, keep on equipping the uh, Ukrainians, but it will not necessarily influence the process of negotiating a ceasefire, I'm afraid. What do you think, Jamie? Yes, uh, I, I agree on that. I mean, I think it makes sense, obviously, to give the Ukrainians the type of weaponry uh, that is going to be effective, that they can hide from the Russians, uh, unlike MiG-29s, which are, of course, a very visible target for the Russians, uh, where the forces, uh, particularly all of these volunteers, uh, joining the Ukrainian forces uh, can be trained quickly, uh, which are suited to urban combat. So things like javelins and stingers make sense. I think one significant move yesterday from the Biden administration, when it uh, announced uh, $800 million of further assistance, uh, was the inclusion of the most modern American uh, combat drones called switchblades, uh, which would really give the Ukrainians a, a significant capability uh, in the uh, uh, air. Uh, it's encouraging that not only the United 
United States, but many other NATO countries are uh, supplying this equipment. And what I thought was very good from the defense minister's meeting yesterday was that a number of uh, European defense ministers said that, you know, despite Putin's threats uh, uh, regarding the uh, transfer of this equipment, uh, they weren't being intimidated and they weren't going to uh, back uh, uh, down. But of course, uh, I think one worry that will be at the back of a lot of NATO member states is that if the Ukrainian army did fold, uh, then Russia might uh, seize a great deal of this weaponry. Uh, you remember after Afghanistan uh, the, that a lot of the systems the Americans supplied then uh, uh, turned up in the hands of the Mujahideen and terrorist organizations for years afterwards. But at the moment, of course, and I agree with Stephanie, the, the main thing is to keep the Ukrainian army in the field and fighting. Uh, and I think the strategy, absolutely, Stephanie's right. I think the strategy is to try to make Russia pay a very, very high price, uh, which obviously might deter Putin from further adventures in the future, even if it's too late to deter the invasion of uh, U U Ukraine and, and make it easier for the Ukrainians to get a good sort of agreement at the negotiating table. But, but it's true, it's difficult to know what Putin's war aims are, and it's difficult to foresee at the moment what the future shape of Ukraine is going to look like and, and what is the least bad option indeed uh, for the, the, the NATO EU countries in that regard. It's certainly not going to be as good as the Ukraine that we had before the conflict. Now, NATO also has plans to considerably beef up its defences of Eastern mm. allies, such as Poland, the Baltic states, Hungary and Romania. Uh, are these troops uh, likely to stay there permanently? I would assume so, Tracy. Um, following the Secretary General's press conference after the Defence Ministerial meeting yesterday, I noticed that he used the term reset, uh, resetting NATO's defence and deterrence forces. Um, and he also said that the Allies would no longer feel bound to agreements we have once upon a time uh, had with the Russians like enshrined in the NATO-Russia Founding Act. So, yes, we are in a new security situation. Uh, I think the Allies are completely right in terms of saying that they uh, don't feel restricted any longer to not putting troops permanently on uh, their allies' territory in order to actually be able to defend ourselves better. Uh, whether this is really a reset to be seen, but again, my assumption is that we're going to see these troops stay there for quite some time to come. Ultimately, also, because I would uh, argue we are in the very early stages of a longer conflict yet to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just add to that very briefly that uh, 10 NATO countries so far, that's one third of the total have sent uh, additional forces. So I think, that, you know, NATO planners will obviously want to come up with a scheme whereby the other 20 uh, also play their part uh, in what is, after all, the common collective uh, defence. Uh, um, it can't just fall on the shoulders of the United States or a, a few other uh, allies. Uh, the other thing, I think, will be to have a consolidated plan, because what we've seen at the moment, Tracy, and Steph knows this, is that you know, people have been sort of sending forces on an ad hoc temporary basis to whichever country they particularly want to send them. Uh, but it's not being coordinated by NATO in terms of, you know, who's going where. For example, if the United States is volunteering 1,000 troops for Poland, the Supreme Allied Commander might think, well, I'd really rather have those in Romania or Bulgaria because that's where I see a vulnerability. So I, I think getting more NATO forces into the action here 
um, uh, obviously uh, coming up with a, a, a calculation of what's still going to be rotational, what's going to be permanent, how much heavy armor versus other types of military systems, how much air defense, and you know, basically making it part of a consolidated plan rather than sort of ad hoc reactions to events. I, I think that's going to be key. It's going to be interesting how long it takes NATO planners to come up with what are options uh, and uh, what the options will be that NATO finally selects. Thank you, Jamie. Um, I want to move to the role of China now. Behind the scenes, there seems to be backroom diplomacy taking place with China, which could play a pivotal role in convincing Putin to stop his war. What is the narrative used with them as Xi Jinping is openly an ally of Putin? Well, uh, Tracy, what I think what we can see uh, is that a number of governments um, from across Europe, but also the United States, until I think very recently, have started to approach the Chinese because um, we want to make the uh, point very clear that China would have much more to lose in uh, in this uh, in this war, in particular uh, if one assumes that the military. In particular, if one uh, can assume if uh, the war in Ukraine um, gets further inflamed and, and becomes larger and, and, and even uh, more escalatory. Uh, China is a uh, deeply embedded globalized actor. That is to say, it has obviously vested interest, business interest, economic interest, interest related to its Belt and Road initiative across Europe, but also if you look at the triple or rather ripple effects of uh, this crisis, of this war, um, across uh, the neighborhood, across the globe, in Africa and elsewhere. So I think one of the points being made by the governments is that um, if to ask China if it's really, really certain to want to remain in a boat with uh, Russia, uh, who would ultimately um, have much less to lose in in all of this uh, than China. So that's probably argument number one. Argument number two is um, the Chinese have at least officially stressed uh, their continuous support for key principles such as territorial integrity. They have included explicitly Ukraine in this. Um, so if they want to stick actually to their own principles, which they have advocated for the past decades, I mean, they would need to be really clear on which side uh, they, they are. And, and lastly, I mean, China has tried through their soft power uh, instruments and approaches quite hard in order to demonstrate that it's really willing to play a responsible role in the world as a global responsible actor. So now would be really the moment to show, I mean, that they would like to remain responsible. And I think this is more or less, I mean, what the Chinese have been heard uh, from different capitals in the past couple of days. And what, um, you mentioned strategic interests globally, but what are the strategic interests of um, the Chinese in Ukraine more specifically? I mean, China, I, I think, I mean, Jamie would add to that as well, but China, to my knowledge, had has had, I mean, quite a intense economic uh, relationship to Ukraine. Ukraine um, has been exported until recently um, fertilizers, uh, certain uh, metals, uh, wheat, and, and you name it. It has also uh, exported to China um, energy, in particular, uh, given energy, uh, China's really big hunger for energy. So there has been over the past years quite a 
um, a, let's say, a, a larger uh, form of uh, economic partnership between Kiev and and Beijing and to lose all this and to now struggle with perhaps even a food crisis in China itself, uh, I would say it would certainly not be in the interest of Beijing. Yes, Steph is more expert on China than I am. But but I would just, just add that I think, you know, when future historians uh, start you know, to be, write the, the first historical sort of versions uh, of the Russia uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, what they have to say about how the West handled China may be the most interesting chapter of the whole thing uh, and most important in determining you know, the future direction of the world, i.e. towards Cold War Mark II or towards you know, something which at least preserves the international liberal order uh, for most of us. Um, and I agree with Steph that you know, China is very ambivalent. On the one hand, a lot of you know, propaganda, rhetorical support for Putin and what he's doing, but on the other hand, uh, making it clear that that they uh, want to uh, remain, if you like, sort of neutral in the conflict. Uh, you know, they've ruled out, at least publicly, the idea that they're going to give weapons to, to, to Russia, as the US uh, has sort of pointed the finger at them for doing. They've offered to, to, to mediate. I agree with what Steph has said. They, they, they you know, abstained in the UN uh, votes, both in the Security Council and General Assembly. And clearly, if they see, you know, the massive impact of uh, uh, Western international sanctions against Russia, uh, you know, going into banking and financial areas and consumer uh, products and so on, uh, trade, insurance, all of these things, you know, they might think, well, my God, you know, if those sanctions were applied to us, and as Steph rightly says, you know, given given uh, their much greater involvement even vis-a-vis -vis Russia in the international economy, and I mean, oh my God, you know, we would really be terribly uh, 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 hit uh, if those sanctions, secondary sanctions, were, were were applied to to us, they have a bigger stake, I think, than Russia in keeping that sort of you know international uh, trading order going. And and so yes, how how does the West therefore handle China in a way that you know doesn't push it so hard that it's driven even closer into the camp with uh, Russia? That's not in our interest. Uh, but, you know, tries to sort of gradually drive Moscow and Beijing apart or gives China greater incentives, you know, to stay out of all of this and to continue to, to cooperate. Uh, I mean, Jake Sullivan, the American National Security Advisor, had a meeting, as you know, with his Chinese counterpart in Rome the other day, mainly to sort of, I think, warn the Chinese to stay out of the war. But this is going to be a long-term in, in, in endeavour. And I think, you know, if you're a strategist, this is probably the most interesting thing uh, uh, to watch for. If I can just add to that, uh, just for a moment, uh, in order to illustrate that uh, China's uh, attitude, ambivalent attitude towards the uh, Ukrainian war is also closely followed in another part of the world. I, I was invited to give an interview to Bloomberg Asia some two years ago. And in the news program, um, they started at least for 10 minutes with coverage of uh, the stock markets. And they interviewed, you know, governance of banks and insurance companies in the region. And just listening to that, you, you get really a sense how nervous uh, businesses, uh, financial institutions, uh, and obviously the markets, stock markets, including are in that part of the world, they are watching very, very carefully how China will uh, position itself towards that wall, because it will have direct repercussions for their own region, not only from a classical security point of view, but also from a economic trade uh, and uh, it, yeah, economic interaction point of view. So 
I think we will come back to that uh, probably later, but when we talk about the West's response, I think we should also look at countries like Australia, Japan, and many others who have joined uh, the West in, in sanctions um, and who have their own view and perspective, what would actually that ripple effect of the Ukrainian crisis would mean for, let's say, Australia's security or security more broadly in Asia Pacific. Uh, just to one, one quick sort of add word from me. I, I think one of the interesting things also to know, uh, you know, does, does the does the Chinese leadership have debates? I mean, what the tragic aspect, of course, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, it's clear that Putin makes all of the decisions, calls all the shots, uh, tolerates absolutely uh, no dissent. Uh, so there are no debates. Uh, uh, before uh, Russia sort of crosses the Rubicon and starts doing sort of silly things. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes it looks as if President Xi has a kind of Putin-esque role in, at the head of the Chinese leadership with a very you know, closed nationalist uh, uh, zero-sum game view of the world. But, but on the other hand, uh, China experts uh, often suggest that you know, in reality, still within the party, within the leadership, uh, you know, there are people who uh, can say, look, uh, President Xi, we shouldn't do this. It's not at our interest. And that and not get thrown into prison for 15 years. So I think one of the interesting things for an analyst is to get a sense of what kind of debates China is having at the moment, because it must realise also that this is a deciding moment in terms of where the rest of the 21st century is going. As I said, new Cold War or, or something, you know, still competitive and even confrontational, but not quite so polarised. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is going to be also very determinant for the future of China as well. So what kind of debates are, are, are they having? That, that would be, it would be great great to be a fly in on the wall uh, in the uh, central committee in Beijing at the moment. Very true. Uh, that leads me into my next question quite nicely, Jamie. Do you think that uh, Xi Jinping is looking to, as much to Ukraine as he is to Taiwan? Uh, for instance, if Putin would uh, lose in Ukraine, might might he decide to back back off a military expedition against Taiwan? But if Putin were to win in Ukraine, is there a risk that uh, Xi Jinping would uh, try to annex Taiwan? Yeah, but that's so difficult, isn't it? And I don't know. All we can do is speculate. I mean, I would think, you know, just off the top of my head, although again, I, I defer to Steph here, who covers China uh, quite closely, uh, I would think that, you know, seeing the uh, the plucky Ukrainian resistance uh, and how difficult it is to subdue a people willing to resist, his first question is probably, you know, uh, will the Chinese army have the same sort of command and control supply problems, uh, uh, you know, morale problems, you know, because Chinese would be fighting Chinese in Taiwan, just like Russians are fighting fellow Slavs in Ukraine. You know, would they really be up for this and motivated, uh, despite all of the propaganda and nationalist rhetoric. Um, and, uh, you know, if Taiwan resists in the way that Ukrainians are resisting, would this suddenly, you know, turn south for us? Uh, and of course, you know, Taiwan, unlike Ukraine, is a long way from China in terms of sea and distance. So the logistics and supply problems for the Chinese would probably be much greater uh, than for the uh, Russians. And secondly, of course, if the sanctions really do start biting against Putin, as we all hope, uh, and China has to consider the same kind of overwhelming, you know, we're not going to let this go kind of thing uh, reaction it has to calculate the cost so yes I, I i would imagine that you know both in terms of sanctions and in terms of resistance um president z might be thinking this is a little bit more complicated than i thought but again i defer to steph because i'm not sufficiently knowledgeable about china to know uh, uh you know uh, what kind of lessons they might conceivably draw uh, 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 from this but let's just hope that the outcome would uh, increase the deterrent factor vis-a-vis -vis china
Yeah. Yeah, um, nothing really uh, more to add than, other than saying I, I really don't think, I mean, that from the Chinese uh, leadership point of view, this is the moment to seriously consider attacking Taiwan militarily. Uh, yes, it's true. I mean, they have this uh, unification or rather reunification on their political agenda for quite some time. Yes, it's also true. Um, they have been watching uh, closely how... Uh, how European and Americans uh, have reacted to the uh, military buildup of Russia earlier this year. But um, looking at uh, the flotora of domestic issues of problems that the Chinese leadership is currently facing and will continue to face, very much again geared towards China's economic growth, I doubt that they decide this is now the golden moment in order to go for Taiwan. Uh, I, I think it's a bit simplistic uh, if one assumes that, um, but this is certainly not something that will go away. I mean, they will continue keeping that issue on their long-term strategic interest uh, agenda for, for clearly for some time to come. Stephanie, I'd like to stay with you, um, uh, but shift focus to Germany now. Um, so Germany is a European economic powerhouse, as we know, but still largely dependent on Russian fossil fuels. Is it acting fast enough in stopping that dependence, uh, which fuels Putin's war machine? Well, Tracy, this is a question that our uh, new, not so new Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, uh, receives almost on an everyday basis. I mean, because he receives these days a lot of prime ministers and, and uh, government representatives from all across. I watched yesterday the press conference uh, he hosted together with the Finnish prime minister and and guess what? I mean, the question of whether Germany would now be prepared to also put uh, its uh, gas and oil imports on Russia uh, on the on the sanction list was uh, put to him. So pressure is clearly there, both uh, from the allies, from partners inside the European Union. Thus far, the German government argues that it wants to to hold it off as an instrument yet to be uh, exerted if necessary. Um, but I personally would assume that they can't, I mean, the German government can't maintain that position for much longer because it's very clear and logical. We keep on feeding Putin's military machinery every single day while buying oil and gas from Russia. We've seen as well that um, the Berlin government will raise its military expenditure dramatically. Can it do so without breaking the balance of power within the EU, um, specifically between uh, France and Germany? Or should these investments go into a uh, European NATO-wide common defence budget? Well, that's another big internal discussion that we are having right now in Germany, what to do with 100 billion euro. Um, that the government has decided to spend on defense. Uh, I would uh, argue that the German government and also political parties are not even in the process now of reconsidering the strategic fallout within the European Union, talking about balancing the powers. It's, it's quite straightforward. Do we have the processes, the mechanism, uh, the procedures in place to be able to spend that money? That's really a, a key question, and I'm afraid to say German foreign ministers, um, former foreign ministers, including the current president of the European Commission, um, they try hard to transform and, uh, and reform 
um, the German procurement system and they failed and they turned around, got another job and moved on. I mean, that was very nice for them to have, but the German procurement system is really dysfunctional. So it will be quite hard for the German government to start spending these funds uh, wisely. And obviously they will gear uh, the capability uh, targets very much aligned to both NATO's defense planning process as well as to uh, the EU's PESCO projects and, and the like. What we've seen just as a last quick remark on that, that uh, wisely, I would argue, the German uh, Minister of Defense, uh, Mrs. Lambrecht, has decided to go for uh, buying something off the shelves like F, uh, the F-35s. Uh, um, I think that's probably a way to go, especially when we look at big hardware, which normally takes 15, 20 years within the procurement uh, system of Germany to, <laughs> to uh, produce some results, but to rather buy off the shelf. Uh, and so if this is the way to go, um, I think that would be at least um, helpful to get as many capabilities uh, on the ground as soon as possible and not waste another, you know, decade to, to, uh, to reform processes. Now, um, as uh, mentioned at the beginning, um, I'd like to bring in some uh, specific questions from citizens who have participated in our uh, Debating Europe platform. So the first question is from Ricky. What can Europe do to exert pressure on Ukraine and Russia to enter serious dialogue leading to a ceasefire and peace process? Maybe, Jamie, I'll kick off with you and then perhaps, I, Stephanie, I'd like to get your views on that question as well. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's an extremely good question. Mm. It's obviously not going to be easy for the EU, for Europe to exert pressure on Ukraine. Uh, to agree to a very shabby sort of compromise peace that would lead to the loss of Ukrainian independence, the incorporation of Ukraine into some sort of new uh, Russian uh, empire, the partition of the country between what Putin would see as a Russian-speaking East and uh, Ukrainian-speaking uh, West, so we end up with a kind of rump uh, Ukrainian uh, state, the loss of a lot of Ukrainian territory, given that you know the Russians may sort of insist that they can stay where they are today with their troops, which would mean that they would gain big chunks of the east out of the uh, Donbass and, of course, uh, a big chunk of the Sea of Azov region and the Black Sea coast, uh, crippling uh, Ukraine shipping. Stephanie referred to Ukraine's trade with the rest of the world uh, earlier. So I, I don't think that the EU would want to sort of push Ukraine into that kind of compromise piece if the Ukrainians reject it and, of course, are still willing to defend themselves and the fight to uh, regain their uh, independence. It's difficult to see that Russia can be pushed to the negotiating table at the moment, although they are talking of course, but but Putin's war aims, you know, denazification, demilitarization, protection of Russians, uh, are very amorphous. It's difficult to know exactly what he uh, wants. And Putin, unfortunately, you know, is now in the typical situation of many dictators that he started a very irresponsible war. It's not going well, but the worse it goes, the more his own uh, survival is on the line. You know, he's already being called a war criminal by President Biden. Uh, and the more he has to come out with some kind of victory uh, to show the Russian people that all of the sacrifice and cost was worthwhile. So he's not going to be in a mood to make concessions anytime uh, soon. Um, maybe 
maybe the best that can be done is EU pressure on both sides, uh, not yet for the grand settlement, but for at least things like, you know, safe areas, humanitarian corridors, you know, to persuade the Russians, at least in places like Mariupol, uh, not just to let people out who want to leave the city. Uh, that's been very difficult, but to allow, you know, urgent food and relief supplies, the UN agencies uh, into the city. So at least to try to help with the humanitarian uh, uh, situation. But uh, the Ukrainians obviously uh, would like to be in a better position uh, before they have to settle. Uh, and of course, the Russians, as I say, uh, will be desperate to come up with some kind of victory. So unfortunately, I believe the fighting is destined to go on for some time still. I fear that Russia regards us, the West, the European Union and NATO as a party to the conflict, full stop. Yeah? As long as we'll continue uh, to, to arm the Ukrainian uh, forces, as long as we keep on supporting Ukraine financially uh, and uh, through other means, uh, uh, Moscow will not listen to our demarches. Uh, I've seen like, uh, like you have done <clears throat> the uh, results of uh, phone calls uh, between Macron and Scholz and, and Putin and, and these phone calls, these conversations obviously ended all in Nirvana land. So <clears throat> what I personally hope for is um, that we see some, let's say, back-channel diplomatic efforts through some credible neutral, quote-unquote, actors that could at least persuade the conflicting parties to agree on some type of supervision cease, supervised ceasefire. Political settlement uh, will take a long time to come. Um, <laughs> I repeat my point. I think we are in this for, for quite some, some time. Um, but hopefully, I mean, whether it's Finland, whether it's Israel, perhaps China yet to be seen. I mean, some behind the door effort uh, could uh, persuade the two parties to accept uh, a neutral institution like the United Nations with perhaps some some people, some peacekeepers to start uh, getting on the ground in order to at least safeguard humanitarian corridors and the provision of uh, medical support and the like. But as long as you mix these uh, very practical and acute issues with these big strategic, very controversial questions, I don't think that the two parties will be, uh, will be really ready for agreement. They're not. I just want to bring in one final question um, before we run out of time completely. I'll, I'll give the floor to Jamie first and then come back to you, Stephanie, for the final word. So the question <coughs> is from Sophie and she would like to know your thoughts on the aftermath from the past few days, uh, not just on the economy side, but what you predict and how this ends, hopefully not in the too far future, she says. Jamie. Well, uh, well we should have had maybe traced this question at the beginning of our podcast today, uh, because Sophie has asked an absolutely brilliant question. And of course, it is the uh, the big question. You know, uh, This is a, a clearly a world crisis, not just a crisis in Ukraine. Uh, and the ramifications are very very uh, broad and deep. I, I think that, you know, two things have to happen. First, of course, address the war in Ukraine. And we've been talking about this, do whatever we can to save Ukraine as a functioning uh, democracy independent state and to raise the price for, for Russia so that Putin doesn't do it again. 
Um, but uh, we're already seeing, you know, the global ramifications, um, and uh, we need to deal with those at the same time. Uh, for example, uh, I'm in the UK, and Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, you know, he's in the Gulf today in United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, um, trying to persuade those two countries to increase their oil output so that obviously we can keep the oil price under control. Because the last thing that political leaders want in Europe or the US is that inflation uh, rips uh, off. It's doing that already. Uh, you know, oil, gas prices, food prices go sky high. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, we have the yellow jackets back on the streets of Paris and a lot of social protest. The last thing we want is this wave of sympathy for Ukraine at the moment, which is admirable, to suddenly turn into a, well, you know, if that's the price of standing up to Russia, you know, I have to pay $5 uh, at the pump for a gallon of gas in the United States. I don't want to do that. So, uh, you know, the social inflation domestic front is going to be key. Um, there's also the energy transition. Stephanie was referring to this, that this is a golden opportunity to go green because we recognize, you know, not just with Russia, but having to go, you know, cap in hand to the Saudis uh, who executed 81 people at the weekend, you know, that, you know, uh, the, the, we may have to make some sort of, you know, the, the lesser evil uh, to combat the greater evil type of decisions, which we really don't want to have to make. So greening the economy is pushing ahead with that is vital. Uh, one thing that uh, I've written about uh, for Friends of Europe this week is the, the food crisis, as we see that on top of the uh, already uh, uh, rising food prices, you know, after COVID, after the, uh, the climate change, natural disasters uh, this past summer, uh, on top of that, Russia, Ukraine, which supply one third of the world's uh, grain, um, uh, you know, that's off market. And so this is now tipping a lot of countries into food insecurity, 800 million people in the world, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization. So uh, obviously, you've got to avoid a long answer here, Tracy, because we're out of time. But but clearly, we're going to have to look at some of these uh, you know, external shockwaves coming out of the conflict uh, and to try to do what we can to uh, nip them in the bud and anticipate them. Stephanie, I'd like to give the last word to you. Yeah, well, um, I can tell you what I did. Um, and this may surprise you probably a bit or probably not, but I started to read again George Cannon's long cable. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the, the cable, I mean, that he sent, uh, what, 76 years ago? I mean, from Moscow to Washington. Um, and I think it's helpful to read through that long cable one more time, even though the situations are not entirely comparable. I mean, but... What we actually need to develop uh, if this conflict keeps on dragging on uh, is a, a modernized 21st century version of global containment. Yeah. Um, containment uh, that includes um, the economic side, the resilience side, the information uh, side, as well as the classical military containment uh, elements of that. And I think the cable of George Cannon is also interesting as to uh, he describes uh, very, I mean, very, very specifically and persuasively um, the way Russia ticks back then, I mean, the Soviet ticks. So if we assume that there are only grossly two or three scenarios that could unfold, one would be regime change, a palace type of coup from within. I mean, that would actually oust Putin and we're going to have a new leader on top who would say, I turn the pages, I stop the war, I try to develop um, a good uh, relationship uh, with my neighbors and, and with Europe and the West at large, scenario number one, or 
a type of iron curtain falling uh, throughout, uh, or rather in the midst of Europe, then we would need to prepare mentally, intellectually, and ultimately, I'd suggest also emotionally for a containment moment. But containment uh, now, 2022, is something completely different than in 46. So we'd need to be very creative about this. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. I'd like to thank you, uh, our guest speaker, Dr. Stephanie Babst, and also our senior fellow, Jamie Shea. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode six of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine.